Journalist and author John Valiant began his professional career with a profound interest in connecting stories of adventure with complex social issues. And it was on a reporting assignment to the remote regions of northwestern Canada that put him on the path of a remarkable narrative steeped in both ancient mythology and a modern controversy at the heart of the environmental protection movement. Well, it was thanks to Outside Magazine that I got up there. I was doing a, a, a paddling story for them in Haida Gwaii, uh, which is this remote archipelago off the northwest coast of British Columbia. An extraordinary place, home of the Haida Nation. One way to understand them is you know, the Vikings of the North Pacific. Huge canoes, but they're also now a very powerful political force, very powerful uh, environmental advocates. And it was also the home of this botanically unique tree, this golden spruce. It was 165 feet tall, you know, seven feet across at the, at the base, and had golden needles. And, and every tree from Mendocino to Anchorage growing in that rainforest band has green needles. And there was one coming up out of the forest. You could see it from 20,000 feet in the air on a plane. There was one golden spire, and it was that tree. Sitting at the MacLab Bistro at the Banff Center in Alberta, Canada, Valiant and I had the opportunity to talk about this incredible tree. The Golden Spruce is at the center of a film which appeared at the 2015 Banff Mountain Film Festival and sets the stage for a very complicated discussion on the importance of wildlife conservation and the sustainable management of public land. In the film, Valiant helps to frame the story behind why this particular tree means so much to the Haida people and their forest home. The golden spruce had a range of meanings, both just as a benign, beautiful, and mysterious presence on the landscape. But on top of that, there is, you know, a bona fide, you know, myth, if you will, a narrative. The story of the golden spruce begins in a village long since reclaimed by the shadows of the forest. It was a time of plenty, but the people were taking too much from the land. A long winter came. The village was decimated by hunger and only two people survived, a little boy and his grandfather. As they fled the village, the man warned the boy, do not look back but the boy could not resist. As he turned back to take one last look, his feet became rooted to the earth. The spirits transformed the boy into a tree in protest of the ways of the people. And there on the banks of the Yakun is the rare and beautiful tree with yellow needles that shine like gold in the sun. It was a unique quirk of nature. The golden spruce did actually have this golden aura a radiance that was derived from a genetic mutation of its needles coloring. But for the Haida, what really makes the golden spruce stand out, it's the only living being that connects to that myth time. The golden spruce was sacred to the Haida people. It was a botanical mystery that was glorious to behold. And as an economic driver to the region, it was a much-beloved tourist destination. Not unlike our own iconic national parks, its location and the surrounding areas were set aside to be protected and preserved. 
The Golden Spruce also stood as a living reminder to never again take so much from the land that we might put it at risk. Tragically though, on forest land nearby on Haidaguay and on public land throughout North America, other trees were being cut down by the tens of thousands in industrial logging operations. Through the devastating practice of clear-cutting, these ancient forests were being destroyed. So in a violent act of protest meant to point out the hypocrisy of saving one tree while thoughtlessly killing many others, a former logger turned activist by the name of Grant Hadwin took it upon himself to cut down the golden spruce in 1997. This story and its aftermath are the subject of the best-selling book, The Golden Spruce, by John Valiant, and the feature documentary film by director Sasha Snow called Hadwin's Judgment. Looking deeply into the heart and mind of a man desperate to save the forest he loves, Valiant offers up an uneasy paradox and this question. Can one atrocity, an act of eco-terrorism, be justified by the horrific destruction of our natural resources for short-term financial gain? I'm James Edward Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Trip Project. It, it was, in a way, literally, you know, not seeing the forest for the tree. You know, it's a, it's a strange twist on that phrase. And the fellow who cut it down, Grant Hadwin, you know, grew up in the logging industry, was very skilled, making good money, well-respected in the field, but he also saw the impact of what he was doing. He was a road layout guy, and so he was basically figuring out how to get semis into these remote valleys so they could pull out timber. And he became more and more uneasy morally, spiritually, emotionally, aesthetically with what he was doing. And he really did try from inside the industry to change practices, but this is the 1980s, it's British Columbia, and it was just all about the bottom line. And there was no mercy, really. And what he was talking about was really almost anathema to the logging mentality, you know, which is get the most for the cheapest. And, you know, it's a, it's a rape it's a rape mentality, and that's what he was getting, was he was seeing this world that gave him huge sustenance and, and energy at every level being, being trashed, and here he was, this agent of its destruction. And he, instead of leaving the industry, you know, had to stay in, because he didn't have other skills, you know, besides this road layout. This film, Hadwin's Judgment, and my book, The Golden Spruce, you can see this really almost 20 year long struggle he has to find some way to fit in without compromising his principles and ultimately he can't and the, he also has you know there's mental illness in his family and you could see as he became more and more stressed more and more uneasy that he became more and more radical in his thinking and he learned about the golden spruce and it was not lost on him a professional logger a, a connoisseur of trees that this, you know, a freak of nature, essentially a sick tree was being saved along with 12 acres while thousands of acres of some of the best, most beautiful, healthiest timber on the continent 
was just being hauled off year after year after year. Now, was there an, a, an epiphany moment for, for Hadwig? I mean, was there a, a point in time in the course of his discovery of the problems that were going on that made him become the activist and ultimately the eco-terrorist that he became? You know, I think some of it was, you know, we work in an industry and as long as we go with the flow, everything's fine and your boss loves you and you're well paid and he had a company truck and, you know, he had all the symbols and indications of success. And then when he went and began to question the hand that was feeding him, the tone changed. Things got very, very chilly. And, wow, well, so what, who am I really to them? You know, am I just a tool for them? And he was, this guy was superhuman, so he could, you could send him into the wilderness alone, which is cheaper, and he would travel enormous distances on foot, was very, very good at doing layout in, in precipitous terrain, and he was a moneymaker for that. And, but they would not accommodate a more you know, moderate, considered approach to the despoliation of these wildernesses. So, and he had made some suggestions. I mean, he yeah, exactly. To, no, he started out in a, a very... You know, he would put a little note. You know, he'd have to write up a report. And he'd put a little note in, a little suggestion, and be blown off. And then he would go in and say, well, did you see my note? And they'd say, yeah, we saw your note, but, you know, here's our bottom line. This is what we do. The road's expensive. You know, if we're going to build the road, we're going to take what's at the end of the road. And it got more and more heated. He got basically ground up in that dilemma. And this is a dilemma that all of us are in, but we're much more protected from it. But, you know, when you look at the tables around us, the beautiful floor, the, the chairs, you know, all that timber came from somewhere. And somebody had to lay out the road to get the trucks and the loggers in there. And... You know, now it's a beautiful chair and we don't feel the cost. But there is a cost. Somewhere in the world, some landscape has been altered to make that chair. And maybe, and chances are it's been altered in a way that is not terribly thoughtful or foresightful. So what happened? He was ordered to appear in court. I mean, no one, you know, he cut a tree down, which, you know, it was on crown land, which was publicly held land, you know, that was leased by this timber company so he wasn't allowed to cut that tree down so there was a, there was you know officially a fine but the tree was a huge valuable tree valuable in timber terms so over five thousand dollars it becomes basically a felony uh, but he was released on bail and ordered to appear in court on Haida Gwaii which is 75 miles offshore and you know so you can see he didn't hide you know the police he was he made his presence known he was staying in a port town on the mainland called Prince Rupert Members of the Haida community called him in his hotel room. The police found him, and they said, we'll fly you over. And he didn't want to go. He didn't want the police to fly him over, and we could take the ferry, and he was afraid he would be beat up on the ferry. People were, people were enraged by this, and there were death threats, not, you know, more from the Anglo community than from the Haida community. But people really thought the Haida would just take care of him. And in the end, he elected to kayak, 75 miles in February in a body of water that has records 100-foot waves, you know, on an almost annual basis. Suicide, basically. And he disappeared en route. And nobody knows what happened to him. And his wreckage, the wreckage of his kayak, all his belongings were found four months later on an uninhabited island about 100 kilometers north. So... 
how did it get there? This island is uninhabited. Nobody knows. What are you prepared to speculate? Well, it was investigated by homicide detectives because of the, the volatility of this case and people's emotions around it. So the RCMP were there, the, uh, the Alaska police were there, and neither one of them were, were prepared to consider it an accident or a foul play. They said, something's funky here, and you know, lots of people disappear themselves. This is an extremely sparsely inhabited piece of the coast. You know, that you could, you could have a 100-square-mile island to yourself if you want it. I mean, it's just very hard for us down south to appreciate how much of it's empty and how, how much there is. And there's also a lot of food up there. So in terms of especially marine life, so, but game also. So a capable person, as Hadwin was, could live off the land no problem. And he had camping gear. So in any case, the jury's out. And many people who knew him personally think he's still alive. He was a real survivor. Uh, he had a wife and kids. He was a family man, you know, when he was with them. But I, I really have to take a more conservative, cautious a stance on this, and I would say that he drowned. So what do you suppose we can learn from this story and the future of preservation and conservation of natural resources today? Well, you know, Hadman debated this, and, and I really thought about it a lot too, is what's crazier? To cut down the golden spruce or to just stand by and just watch your patrimony, your mother, the, the systems that keep us all alive be ransacked in the most egregiously greedy way possible. And, you know, you watch the film, Hadwin's Judgment, and there is live GoPro footage of logging in action, feller buncher machines and it is absolutely barbaric. It's extraordinarily violent. Leaves tremendous damage after. And it's, a, it's like tree mining, basically. And it's appalling. And most of us don't get to see it. And so we can say, oh, what a beautiful board this is. Or I love living in a wooden house. But when you see the impact, the earth deserves better. Our resources deserve better. The human race deserves better. And Hadwin was incensed and activated by these appalling abuses and we need more of that we don't need more expressions along the lines of cutting down the golden spruce but we need people with that kind of passion and outrage who really see it really know what they're talking about this guy spent his life in the logging industry he knew he knew the game and you know he had a kind of moral integrity you know he lost his job he lost his livelihood he was good at it he he had a, you know, and, and how many of us would give up the thing that defines our identity for which we get the most praise, the most money? How many of us would give that up on principle? That's basically what he did. And so, you know, on that level, you know, I, th I think he's admirable. And I think also, you know, as these stories come out, the fact that this story has lived for 10 years, you know, it's been published in other countries, the book keeps selling. I just got invited to an architecture conference in New York based on this book. And who would have thought a Northwest Coast logging story would be relevant to design people in Manhattan? But it actually is when you think about it, you know, because you're building these structures and these are a young, new generation who's thinking about where's the stuff that's making these buildings come from? Do these buildings 
enhance the environment or just enhance the egos and the living experience of the people inside them. And you know, we need something more generative, more integrated, more holistic, and something more reciprocal. And that's changing. And it's really exciting. The book, The Golden Spruce, A True Story of Myth, Madness, and Greed by John Valiant is an international bestseller. Hedwin's Judgment is the 2015 Banff Mountain Film Festival winner of the best film on mountain environment and natural history. You can learn more about this incredible film and the story behind it online. Visit hadwinsjudgment.com. For the Joycher Project, this is James Edward Mills. Our theme music is by Jake Shimobukuro. The Joycher Project is made possible thanks to the generous support of fans like you on Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support this podcast and many other adventure media initiatives covered here. For details, visit patreon.com slash Project. Thanks for listening. But as always, I want to hear from you. So please, write me with your questions, comments, and criticisms to info at joytripproject.com. Go be joyful. And until next time, take care. <laughs>